Well, you probably noticed that we have the communion tables out this morning, which if you're new here, we do that on the first Sunday of each month as our typical pattern. And uh, of course, it intersects every year with uh, our Independence Day weekend on July 4th, 1776, 56 members of the Second Continental Congress ratified the text for our Declaration of Independence. It was signed on August 2nd, but we set up July 4th as our, our time to celebrate that. It's amazing reality, isn't it, that, that we live as heirs of what they did. I want you to think about that for a moment as we move toward communion. We live as heirs. You know, an heir is someone who receives an inheritance from a generation before them, right? And we live as heirs of what they did. Now, what's important to understand about is an inheritance is that you don't get to decide what it is. It is given to you. It's determined by that generation, right? And so we, these many generations later, are grateful recipients of an inheritance that has been passed down. And the inheritance was about what? It was about freedom. It was about democracy. It was about one nation under God, yes? yes. That was the inheritance. That is what it is that we have been given. We don't get to rewrite the inheritance. We were given what we were given, and it's a great thing. In uh, the short book of Titus, Paul said at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. In other words, at one time humanity lived under the, the thumb of a tyrant. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, I love it when the word but appears in the Bible. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So catch this. So that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Jesus has set the inheritance. And the inheritance is eternal life. The Bible says that the inheritance which will be fulfilled in its proper time is eternal life and that He has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, it says, guaranteeing what is to come. The Holy Spirit that we experience and encounter in here, that's a, that's a deposit. When you're stirred, so stirred by God in the presence of the Holy Spirit, that's like a, a crumb that fell off the table compared to the inheritance that's coming. Beloved, when you come up to the tables today, I, I just want to invite you to take up your inheritance, to receive from God the thing that he, that he died to give you, and that is sonship in his family.
Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, the Bible says, he gave the right to become the children of God. So when you come up, I pray that this time it will be a time of, of receiving a deposit of your inheritance and the freedom that comes with that. In just a moment, the offering baskets are going to begin to circulate, and once the basket passes by you, I want to encourage you to get up from where you are and to go to one of the tables. There are two in the front and two in the back. Go to whichever one may be closer to you, closest to you, and uh, go ahead and take the elements and come back. Let's hold on to them, and we'll come back and take them all together. You may be here for the first time and saying, am I welcome at these tables? I'm not a member of the church, and our our take on that is that these are not our tables. These are the tables of the Lord. And if you're seeking the Lord, if Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, then you are, I, I, on behalf of the Bible, I want to say you're welcome to his tables. Let's pray. Father, in this uh, act of, of obedience to coming and hearing you say as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me, we, we have a sense of anticipation in us, Lord. God forbid that this would ever be a religious box to check off on the first Sunday of each month and we would miss our opportunity to come into you, your presence and encounter your grace and your love and your power and your mercy. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. I know I can't pray for this bread and juice. I can't pray on anybody's behalf and make anything happen. I can only pray on my own, and so I just pray that your Holy Spirit will come for every person and stir them in their hearts as we confess our sins to you and confess that we, we do want to be cleansed. We confess we are still as much in need of a Savior today as we were on day one. Our sin list might be different, but we're still in need, Lord. And so we just pray that you will renew that covenant of forgiveness and blessing in us as we take up our place as sons and daughters by the body and blood of your son Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, uh, if you've been around here for kind of our rhythm of things, many of you know that uh, Independence Day weekend also falls on a very same very important weekend for us, and we're going to let the uh, middle schoolers... Uh, I was just testing you on high schoolers, head on out that way with Eric and, and Brian, they're up today. Knock it out of the park, guys. See ya. Steve, you're too old for that. Steve, you can't go, man. All right. Wow. Good catch, Karen. <laughs> so, uh, same weekend as our water well weekend, which we're all super excited about every year because of a long-standing relationship that we have with the country of India. Many of us have been there many times to do short-term mission ministry, and it's on your heart. You build a children's home in Bangalore, and then you continue just to, to uh, provide funds to, to drill wells in India. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Anybody take a shower this morning? Anybody? I didn't think so. Uh, and, you know, you just stand there for as long as you want, right? Pretty much, within reason. And you go to places like India, many parts of Africa, some Central and South America, where they do not have the opportunity to get a single glass of clean water. And by God's grace and your generosity, 
We have drilled dozens of wells. There are literally thousands of people, thousands of Indian people who right now are, are in villages like Muthu Ramapuram and the leper colony in Bargur, places we've seen with our own eyes where there are hand pump wells there drawing water 800 feet out of the ground, which is a very deep well, which is how far you have to go to get clean water. And they're there right now. They're there right now because of what you guys do. I'm just so grateful, grateful to you, and thank you, thank you for this weekend every year. Thank you for what you do. Yesterday's 5K was fantastic. That was the best 5K we've ever done. There wasn't, wasn't there just a really nice sort of atmosphere yesterday? It was beautiful weather. Thanks for running. Thanks for supporting. Thanks for sponsoring. And you know, every year before that 5K kicks off, I pray. So, you know, there are people from everywhere there. And I just say, let's pray before you go. And every single year I get choked up. Because I see all these people out there who don't know these people in India. And, and they're out there getting ready to run in the summer to help provide fresh water for them. Here's our number for so far. Here we go, 7,045. We used to be able to say that was about three wells, but it's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we're in the summer short series, as many of you know. And the summer short series, what that means is very simply, we're living in the shallow end of the pool. We are not parsing Greek verbs. We are not looking at Augustine's theology. We're, we're, uh, we even use a party font on our outlines. Ooh, ooh, right? Yeah. We're living in the shallow end for the summer, okay? You guys have been so good in the Through the Bible series this past year to really do some of the harder work. It's time just to put your arms back and let this stuff soak in. So it's a shallower, it's shorter. The messages are shorter. That was a test. Uh, they better be now with this late start I'm getting, right? They're topical and more practical in nature rather than expositional. We'll be racing around through the Bible, so get your Bibles ready, okay? Uh, among the suggestions offered to me, and you guys were really grateful or faithful to offer suggestions for topics for the summer short series, was the topic of temptation. How do you deal with temptation? And frankly, when I got this uh, suggestion by email, I was stunned because I thought you guys were over that. Aren't you Christians? Aren't you trusting in Christ? Isn't the Word of God dwelling in you? Aren't you filled with the Spirit? And you still struggle with temptation? Yep. <laughs> the oldest Christian in the church just said, yep. <laughs> wow. There's no hope. <laughs> there is hope. It's Him. Yeah. Temptations, of course, we all face temptations. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Temptations are the varieties of things we're drawn to that we know full well are outside of God's plan for our lives, right? We just define it as that, those things that we are sometimes even mysteriously drawn to that we know are outside of God's plan. Some of the temptations we face are pretty obvious. Some of them are more insidious, aren't they? They kind of sneak in. Through different places, we get blindsided by... They're all very real, though, aren't they? Temptations are real. 
It is not simply some sort of imagination battle, but it's a real thing in a real realm that affects our thinking and it affects our behavior. They're real. When we succumb to temptation, it always has consequences, doesn't it? Every single time. Thank, thanks for the blood of Christ that we continue to be forgiven as our faith is authentically in his shed blood on the cross. Thanks be to God for that, right? But there are still always consequences. Either internal consequences or sometimes external consequences between people when we succumb to temptation. And every temptation shares this in common, that when we succumb to them, they are all injurious to the quality and the depth of our relationship with God. They hurt us. Who's behind temptation? There you go. No wonder they hurt us. What to do about temptation was the question. I think perhaps the most definitive passage in the Bible on this is in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. And he starts by talking about trials and then shifts over to temptations. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials, trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Verse 4. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, you must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, and double-minded man unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. Amen. There's encouragement for some of you, right? But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms, blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows." He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be kind of first fruits of all he created. Lord, we just pray that you'll come and make this word fit in the important places in our lives. Just, just cram it in, Lord, even when we resist. Just keep pushing it in, Lord. Amen. So I'm going to give you some practical actions for developing a victorious lifestyle. You good with that? Hello? Okay. Number one, know the difference between trials and temptations. It's an important difference between trials and temptations. Back to verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God's tempted me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. But he just says that in verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres in trial. Sometimes we're going through difficult times and we didn't cause it. Right? We didn't cause it. We're in a trial. Now, none of us are completely innocent in everything, right? But we get into situations where 
we're in a difficult time and we didn't cause it. And that's a trial. And in spite of what some of the TV preachers may be trying to sell you, (laughs) trials are part of God's plan for our life. Trials are part of God's plan for our life. There's a purpose to them. They're different than temptations. And the Bible calls us to let trials do their work. Let trials do their work. There's kind of a surrendered cooperation to a period of trial. God, do your work. How many of you have prayed like me, God, do your work as fast as you can? <laughs> Quicker. I know it's not, it's not fun to be there, it's not comfortable to be there, but God is doing a work when we're in trials. James says when we're in trials, we ought to exhibit pure joy. Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. That's messed up, isn't it? Trials are going to be in our life. Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, but I have overcome the world. Let trials do their work. Cooperate. So you let trials do their work, but by contrast, you keep temptations from doing their work. The goal of temptations is to discourage you and ultimately devour you. Who has 1 Peter 5, 8? 1 Peter, not far from James if you're there. Of course, you guys with your little I-whatevers, it doesn't matter because you don't have to know where the books of the Bible are. You just keep wiggling your thumb around. That ain't right. You should have to suffer more to be a Christian. <laughs> suffer like I suffer. <laughs> First Peter 5, 8. Anybody have that? Go ahead, Dan. Good. And we've heard that before. Thank you. Well read. Oh, by the way, apologies to the podcast people who may listen to this. I was informed this week that when I do this, People on the podcast can't hear you all, but you have, you have the scripture reference. Look it up for yourself. <laughs> the devil's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may what? Devour. That's the purpose of, of a temptation. And we don't want to let, we don't want to cooperate with that. We want to keep that from happening. The mechanics, according to, to the James chapter 1, the mechanics of temptation are predictable. Look, at, look with me back at verse 14. But each one is tempted when, and then look at the linear progression, when by his own evil desire, so resident within us is still some of that junk, isn't there? There's, the devil doesn't have to introduce new material. It's in there, right? By his own evil desire, he's dragged away. How often do we talk about isolation here? He's dragged away and enticed. Looky here, you're all by yourself. No one will know. Then after desire has conceived, you get there, you go, I could be into that. It gives birth to sin. Sin is born as we cross over that line from desire to action. And when it's full grown, gives birth to death. The purpose of sin is death. The, the end of sin is death. The purpose of temptation is to lead us into sin. So we need to understand that, that when we're in trials, it doesn't mean necessarily we're even doing anything wrong. 
So first, understand the difference. Second, I want to encourage you to know the ingredients that make up your perfect storm. Have you noticed that you're far more likely to succumb to temptation when certain things are true? Have you noticed this? It's like when certain things come together, you're, you're more likely to succumb to... T- Who knows what I'm talking about? Okay, so you know that. And it's important to, to, to keep that in mind so that you can be aware, be alert. Because as Daniel read, he says, it said, be sober-minded and alert for the devil. He's trying to invite you into those sets of circumstances. Now, your perfect storm is going to be unique to you, but I think here are some possible common elements in a perfect storm of a believer. The first is isolation. Isolation. If the enemy can get you alone, can take you away from the body, you're far more likely to succumb to temptation than when you're in the body and well-connected with brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The power, the power of company, of being in company, is agreement. Jesus said, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. I don't think that's a name and acclaim of verse at all. I think that's Jesus calling us into locked relationship and agreement. And there's power in that. And the power also of company is that I'm among people I love. You know, when you're alone, the thought of the consequence of your succumbing to temptation is not as obvious as when you're in company and you're with the people you love and you go, if I do that, I will hurt them. But when we're separated, it's like it doesn't occur to us in the same way, does it? And so isolation I think fatigue is another element of the perfect storm. How many of you feel like you are more likely to succumb to temptation if you're just tired? You know, you just get worn down. It's like, ah, pardon my parlance, but screw it, right? That just got, who cares? And you get tired. You just get tired. I think a sedentary lifestyle, a sedentary lifestyle can contribute to being, to sec- now how many of you when you're on your game and you're exercising whatever your thing is, I noticed at the uh, rummage giveaway yesterday that was so great that the Nordetrack thing never went anywhere. It was still here after all those people came. Nobody wanted that. How many of you have noticed that when you're exercising, when you're not just sitting still, when you're, there's something that's happening in your mind, you feel stronger, you feel clearer, yes? And when you're not, it's, does it get mushy up there or is it just me? It starts to get a little mushy up there. I think that has to do with endorphins or something that scientists know about. But look, behind all the science is God, right? Behind all the science is how God made us. So if, there's, it's a, if it can be explained by endorphins, it can be explained that God wrote that stuff into our glandular system so that we could have that. How about Biblelessness? Is that a word? I made it up this week. It's a word now. Biblelessness. When we stay, when we avoid the Word of God, when we get in those seasons where we're not in the Word, for whatever reason. This is another element of the cold front moving in for the perfect storm. 
And I want to give you one more, and that's exposure to our shame triggers. Oh, this the devil loves to work here. There are certain things that when you succumb to that temptation, the sense of shame comes over you, self-loathing comes over you, and this is, a, this is the, an element of the perfect storm that causes you to doubt your place in the family, doubt your place, doubt the power of the cross, doubt what Jesus did, doubt the word of God. Because who would die for you, right? Who would die for you? You promised you'd never do that again, didn't you? And you're doing it more. And so that's a shame trigger. It's a shame trigger. And when you get there, you know, when when you're near the shame triggers, I'm talking about, you know, the Bible says, flee youthful lusts, which means stay away from stuff that triggers the, the very environment where you're more likely to be exposed to the temptation of the shame trigger. The enemy wants to shame you. The Bible says in Hebrews that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He died for us to bear the shame and to scorn it, to conquer the shame. I think these are just things there. You have unique features in your perfect storm of temptation. And the third thing I want to I encourage you to do is to proactively and consistently draw near to God. Keep drawing near to God. You know, in James chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. How many of you have resisted the devil and he didn't go anywhere? Just me and Jim? Seriously, liar, liar, pants on fire. All of you did this. You resisted the devil and you didn't go anywhere. Maybe we didn't do the first part. Submit yourself to God and then resist the devil. There's a sequential order here. Submit, draw proactively, consistently, draw near to God in our lives, and then we'll have the power. If you read the next verse, come near to God and he'll come near to you. Draw near, draw near to God. Who has Matthew 6.13? We're going to look at all those, all four of those real quickly. So who's got Matthew 6.13? I'd like to read it. Yes, uh, I know your name. I just... Try it just like with the big voice like you're yelling at somebody a little bigger. <sighs> Thank you. Well done. Lead us, how many recognize those words? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Those are from where? Does anybody know? In the Lord's Prayer, right? It's right in there how Jesus was teaching his disciples and ultimately us by extension to pray. He said, pray this. Lead us not into... So you're being proactive about it. God, lead me in a way that doesn't take me near this stuff. How about 2 Timothy 2.22? Thank you, Charlie. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Thank you. So flee youthful lust, but, but pursue righteousness along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So there's the company aspect of it. Do it with the others. Pursue God. 
You'll be stronger today because you came and worshiped God in company of others who are also pursuing God. That's the promise of the scripture. Psalm 119, verse 11. Tim? Thank you. I've hidden his word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So by storing the word of God in our hearts, by embracing it, by immersing ourselves in it, by memorizing it, by having it on board all the time, it increases, it automatically increases our capacity to be victorious over sin. And then Colossians, no, I'm going to say a little bit more about that. Listen, what happens when we consistently when we consistently stay in the Word of God, is that our, our sense of the righteousness of God becomes substantially more acute. I want you to think about this. When we stay out of the Word of God, then what happens? The standards of righteousness, ethics, morality of the world creep in. Right? Because we're here. We're here. And we tend to bend and bow to it. But staying in the Word of God causes us to recalibrate our ethics, our morality, our standard of righteousness. And so we're in this world that's constantly saying, you know what, you Bible people are so archaic. That's not how it is anymore. That's not how it is anymore. I was challenging a person who I was in conversation with in the in the challenge, they had posted something on Facebook that was absolutely disgraceful. And I was told by this person, you got to get with it, that's the way it is. I'll tell you, I'm not getting with it. I'm not getting with it. Because as I stay immersed in the Word of God, my standard of righteousness, my standard of ethics, my standard of morality, my standard of what is right, is determined by the Word of God and not by the world. And the world keeps telling you. The world keeps telling you stuff like, listen, homosexuality is here to stay. You better get with it. Now, we love homosexuals. We love heterosexuals. We love you guys that are all messed up in your heterosexual sin. And there's no difference. But it's sin. And when we, when we stay out of the Word of God, then the standards of the world just start creeping in and begin it. we begin to adapt to them. And so what happens in temptation is it's like, well, that's not even a sin anymore. Henry Nouwen, in one of his books, I don't remember which one, said, one of the greatest sins of America is our passion to be relevant. Because in our we, we have this mantra, we must be relevant to the culture. And in our passion to be relevant, we have to compromise the standards of righteousness of the Word. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, proactively seek him. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I think the single most important and effective thing we can do to be consistently victorious over temptation is to live daily from our sense of belonging. If there's one thing I want you to get this morning, 
It's that you get victory when you live from a sense of the truth that you belong to God. Here it is. By the blood of Christ. By your response to his offer of faith and grace, or his offer of grace through faith. The Bible says you're, you're a son, you're a daughter of the living God. When we live in that awareness of belonging to God, then we have more power, we have more victory, we have more motivation toward the things of God. When we, when we begin to vacate that position, we go, what difference does it make? What, what difference is this really going to make? It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit is in you, whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You're bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You're not your own. Now, in, in fairness to that, that context is about temple prostitutes, and that's one thing we don't have. Okay? But the principle is still the same. You have a body. You have a body. It's a house of the Holy Spirit. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But he says you're not your own. You belong to God. And I think some of you today are really ready to begin belonging. There are those of you who would like to enter into a saving relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible says when you do that, your papers are changed. It says you have the right to become the children of God, the sons of God. You have a right. Your paperwork is changed. And that's a moment in time when you respond in faith to this offer of the Lord. And some of you are there today. And you say, today, I would like to cross that line. I would like to invite Jesus Christ into my life. I'd like to surrender my life to him. I recognize that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And I ask, I right now want to ask Jesus Christ into my life and belong to him. Others of you are here and you know you've, you've made that crossing but maybe you've never entered into a sense of belonging. You know, you've got all this in your mind. It's like, yeah, I know what the Bible says, that it is by grace we are saved, not by works, lest any man should boast. I know the scriptures. I know all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We're justified freely by, you know, Jesus. And I, I know these things, and it's there, and you're saved. Thank God for you. But I wonder if there are some here today who say, you know, I really want this to be something so much more than that. I want, I want to live from this sense of belonging. You know, I know a few people who, they're adopted. And, I, you know, this is an act of adoption. What, this whole thing is an act of adoption. We were not sons and daughters of God. And by Christ and our response to him, we are. It's an adoption. I know adopted people who say stuff like, you know, you have to own your adoption. Just being placed in the family doesn't finish it. They knew they were chosen by parents who picked them out of a crowd, perhaps, and all these things are true. They know this. But there's still something that has to happen in their hearts to embrace their adoption, their sense of belonging. When we move into that place of belonging to God, 
our sense of motivation for victory, our sense of calling on him, his nearness, his presence, his power for victory over sin increases. There are some of you today who would like to respond to this in your hearts. And in just a moment, we're going to have prayer team people over here. And if you're someone who says, today, I would like to cross that line and to belong to God, I want you to go over to them. Over on the, they'll, they know, they'll know exactly what to do. They'll know exactly what to say. They'll know exactly how to pray. They'll give you a Bible so that you can begin exploring. You just go over to them. If you're a person here today and you say, I, I'm already through that, but I just want this sense of belonging and you'd like to, to come up, why don't you guys just kind of come up around here and just press in to the Lord. Okay. Church, let's stand. Prayer ministry people, could we, prayer team people, could you go over and be available to pray with anybody who today, today wants to make a crossing into the family of God by the work of Jesus on the cross. They'll know exactly what to do. If you're a person who says, I want belonging, I want to sense that belonging as a believer, come on up and just, come on up here and, and just press in. Let the sense of the Father's love just come and touch you. Come on.